Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to this teaching class from Thames Valley Churches of Christ. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark in January and February 2022, and these teaching classes are based on some of the chapters of the Gospel. Today we're in Mark chapter 15. The intention of these classes is that I will provide some background overview of the chapter, and then you can use it in your local situation, certainly for personal devotional material, but also significantly in our local groups, our locations, our family groups, our small groups, our life groups, whatever smaller group we have. Hopefully this will be a stimulus to some fruitful spiritual conversation, not only for yourself personally, but also for your groups. And my key question for you at the beginning here today is, as we look at Mark chapter 15, what is it in this chapter, especially in Jesus, and the nature of God that will be useful to you in your current local congregational setting. What's most meaningful for you? Now, there's a lot of material in chapter 15, so let's dive straight in. I'm going to go through it bit by bit and make some comments and then have a couple of questions left at the end to, uh, for us to discuss. So just before we get into Mark 15, we should think about the end of Mark 14, a very long chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And of course, like most of the Gospels, the focus of the Gospel is a lot of teaching, a lot of examples from the life of Jesus. And then we have a large body of teaching on a description of what happens to Jesus as he is in Jerusalem for the last time, arrested, tried and taken to the cross crucified and then resurrected. In chapter 14, there's a lot of wonderful detail there. I expect you had uh, something good for your sermons on that from chapter 14. But at the end, we have Jesus isolated. There's been people around him for the last three, three and a half years. Disciples, family, crowds, Pharisees, all kinds of people. But now Peter disowns Jesus at the end of chapter 14, leaving Jesus completely in the spotlight on his own. He has called down curses on himself, has Peter, and the cock crows, and Peter remembers what Jesus says, said, and he broke down and he wept. The next thing that happens in Mark 15, very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, teachers of the Lord, the whole Sanhedrin, they made their plans. There's a threat looming. It's been looming for a while, but now it's becoming more concrete. They bind Jesus. He's on his own. Nobody with him. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And just a quick comment at the beginning here. If ever you feel alone, you feel completely isolated, like there's no one around you, you're, you're in some circumstance where your friends, your family, those people you'd normally count on for support, even church members, they're not available to you. Don't despair. If you're on your own, then you're like Jesus in this situation. And if he could handle the isolation with nothing more than the support of his father, then you and I can handle those moments of isolation when they come to us. In chapter 2, uh, in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. They've taken him to Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they accuse you of? He made no reply. Pilate was amazed. It's the custom at the festival to release a prisoner. Uh, the a man called Barabbas was in prison because he committed murder. The crowd came and asked Pilate, to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stood at the crowd and they asked for Barabbas instead. And what do they want to be done to the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? They shout all the louder. Crucify him. So he wants to satisfy the crowd. He released Barabbas to them, had Jesus flogged. 
handed him over to be crucified. So a few thoughts on this before we go on to the next section. So the question here, are you the king of the Jews, in verse 2, that implies that the Jewish authorities have told Pilate about this claim. And they're, thereby, they're therefore using uh, political means of executing Jesus. What a sad thing it is when the religious and political authorities come together to kill, uh, kill Jesus. They're showing their hand. They're not interested in removing Jesus just on spiritual grounds, but they're willing to use any means available. And so they're revealed as hypocrites, willing to use secular means for supposedly spiritual ends. Have a look in Luke 23 for more of the charges supposedly against him. As Hurtado says in his commentary, whatever we, we may think about the nature of Jesus' own understanding of his mission and person, the evidence suggests that the authorities saw fit to regard him as a danger that had to be eliminated. In other words, the crucifixion is solid evidence that the idea that Jesus was the Messiah was not invented by the church after his execution, but it was something Jesus believed in and taught. Crucifixion here is what Pilate comes up with. Um, he's, it's reserved for rebels, and Pilate must have seen Jesus this way as a rebel in order to have a legitimate reason to crucify him. It means that Jesus did claim some kind of kingship. Otherwise, Pilate would not have gone through with this. And of course, there's a great irony here. Pilate accuses him of something that's, well, actually true, that he is king of the Jews, but not in the way that the, um, the authorities uh, meant or indeed understood. He is king indeed, and the church reading this later at times of persecution would be greatly encouraged to be reminded of this when it looked like their situation was as hopeless as Jesus' own situation was. In verse 5, Jesus makes no reply. Pilate is amazed. Like a lot of people in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been paying attention through the book, many people are amazed. Pilate is amazed just like them. He's amazed at Jesus, but still it doesn't lead to true understanding and true faith. People can be impressed by Jesus without coming to faith. What a tragedy uh, that would be. You'll notice that he uses the term King of the Jews here. And that's a term used by Gentiles, actually, not by Jewish people. Uh, it, it makes sense that Pilate used this title and not the title King of Israel, which we'll see later in verse 32. In chapter 15, verse 10, he, Pilate, it said, knows that what's going on here is the self-interest of the religious leaders. Pilate's almost perhaps deliberately galling the Jewish authorities because they know, he knows they hate Jesus. His motive for trying to release Jesus was likely the desire to make life more difficult for the religious authorities so they'd have less time to trouble him. We know from other sources that Pilate had a very troubled reign as governor in Judea and was not liked by his uh, superiors and not liked by the people he was governing. Pilate seemed to enjoy stirring up trouble. As for Barabbas, the substitutionary switch, Barabbas for Jesus, or Jesus for Barabbas, parallels the whole purposes, purpose of Jesus's crucifixion, doesn't it? The perfect dying to save sinners. Barabbas is saved by Jesus in a strange kind of a way. Jesus is flogged, and of course, that's a horrific experience. Uh, they used a whip made of leather thongs, connecting pieces of metal and bone in a chain. There was no restriction legally on this flogging. It flayed the flesh from the body and was sometimes fatal. Not here, but sometimes it was. Let's go on to the next section. The soldiers mocking Jesus. They lead him away into the palace, the praetorium, and call together the whole company of soldiers, they put a purple robe on him, twist together uh, a crown of thorns and put it on his head. 
they call out, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, spat on him, falling on the knees, paid homage to him. They mocked him. They took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, led him out to be crucified. This mocking parallels that of the religious authorities that we saw earlier in chapter 14 in verse 65. You might want to look at that as a, a, a parallel, though it has some differences. The world does not see the true value of Jesus. Do we see the true value of him, the true nature of him? One of the reasons for doing these kinds of Bible studies and these kinds of series is to remind us who he really is, not who we think he is, not who we assume he is, but let Jesus define himself to us. As Hattato says in his commentary, ancient images of crowns frequently show the kings wearing crowns with radiating points, symbolizing the glory flowing from the head of the monarch. These thorny or spiked branches mock that type of crown, using materials ready at hand from the acanthus shrub or from palms. Another irony. And they fall on their knees before him in verse 19. Um, another irony, you could say, because one day every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, including ours. You might like for a devotional connection with this to look at Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11, which makes a great prayer frame for uh, a devotional time. Mark's purpose in this is not perhaps to emphasize the physical sufferings endured by Jesus so much, but rather the indignities he endured in spite of who he really is. As you read this, you, you, you can be thinking, is this the way to treat a king? Any king, let alone the king of everything that there is. The purple robe is, um, uh, again, a mockery because it's the color of the commander-in-chief's cloak. The crucifixion of Jesus, verse 21 and following. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. They forced him to carry the cross. They bring Jesus to Golgotha. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh. He didn't take it. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes, casting lots. Nine in the morning they crucified him. The written notice, the king of the Jews. Two rebels crucified with him, right and left. They, those who passed by hurled insults, shaking their heads. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. Same way, chief priests, teachers of the law mocked him. He saved others, they said, can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults uh, on him. Can you imagine being Cyrene? I mean, this is a bit of a side point, but uh, it might be worth just having a devotional time based on that. Can you imagine being this chap, uh, press-ganged into carrying the cross? Unexpected to him, and truthfully, you and I have a lot of things, a lot of unexpected things happen in the Christian life. Uh, so we uh, we need to be prepared for the way in which we are called into the service of Christ without being without it being something we uh, anticipated. So if you're finding yourself serving in some way right now that you didn't plan, for, uh, take it with good grace and let God use you. It's quite likely that Alexander and Rufus, named here, were known to the early church. It's thought that there's evidence that they became Christians. And the details of the names also support, support the idea that this is based on a very early source. Uh, Simon uh, was uh, forced to carry the cross in contrast to Jesus, who willingly took up his cross 
our challenge is to willingly take up our cross, of course. In the context of the theology of the Gospel of Mark, the reader is to see that precisely in this brutal humiliation of Jesus, the redeeming purpose of God comes to full expression, which is wonderful. He's taken to Golgotha, which in Latin is Calvarium, which is why we get the word Calvary in this uh, context. Uh, the wine is offered to him. It's a sour local wine, bitter to taste, mixed with myrrh. It would have a potentially a soporific effect. Uh, it, was, it was an act of mercy to dull the experience for Jesus on the cross. But Jesus refuses. Why? At least perhaps partly because he wants to be fully alert for that which is to come. Maybe some references here to Psalm 69, if you want to look that up. And to Psalm 22, a lot of references which we won't have time to look into now, but I'd recommend you look at Psalm 69, Psalm 22. And again, use that as a devotional prayer frame or scaffolding um, uh, to connect more directly and powerfully with what's going on here in his crucifixion. These other two men are crucified with Jesus. Uh, presumably that had been planned along with Barabbas. That was the original um, trio, uh, but Jesus is taking Barabbas's place. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, a cross-reference for something you might find uh, useful. And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. That's Isaiah 53, verse 12, if you want to look at that. They shake their heads. That's a cultural um, thing going on there. The shaking of heads conveys mockery. Again, Psalm 22. And then the opponents uh, mock him, and they see, they see... Even they see the mission of Jesus clearly because they say he saved others. They knew he wanted to save people. Uh, the, the taunter state, the core truth of the gospel without even realizing its significance. So Jesus cannot save himself because he could have, but he cannot because precisely because he had chosen to save others. This is where the freedom of Jesus is constrained by the love of Jesus. And that's why we, though we are free, we make choices that are spiritual as best we can, because although we are free in Christ, we want to bless others with the freedom we've been given. And, and Jesus is the um, example of inspiration above all others for that. To descend from the cross was not indeed a physical impossibility, you could say, but it was a moral and spiritual impossibility for Messiah. Jesus had dealt with any temptations already uh, to compromise with God, uh, Mark chapter 1, Mark 8, and Mark 14. The statement that they make, that, he's, uh, that he is Messiah, King of Israel, is true, but not in the way they're thinking. There's great irony in this. Let's go on. Verse 33. At noon, darkness comes over the whole land till three in the afternoon. At that time, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some standing near, they say he's calling Elijah. They get a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offer to him, it to him, leave him alone. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple, torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The women are there watching from a distance, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, Salome. These women had followed him, provided for his needs. Other women are there as well. A few thoughts on this. There's a connection here with Amos 8, verse 9, and Exodus 10, 21 to 22. You might like to look that up. Amos 8, Exodus 10, where darkness descending is a sign 
of God's judgment upon those who reject God. Darkness at noon, by its paradoxical nature, was a fitting sign for God the Creator to give to those who had rejected the light of the world. Allusions again here to Psalm 22, and perhaps this cry from Jesus tells us less about Jesus' feelings at this point and more of the theological point or significance of the event. But it's hard to read it and imagine the event without seeing it as a personal statement of anguish caused by the reality of his impending separation from the Father. And even at his point of anguish, Jesus is still talking to God, believing in God, calling on God. Psalm 22 he's quoting from is a cry of victory, not hopelessness. So it's reasonable to think that Jesus chose this scripture uh, as, as opposed to many that could have expressed greater hopelessness because of its victorious stance. Again, have a look at Psalm 22. Elijah is mentioned here because he's already come, of course, in John the Baptist, in a sense, and been executed after achieving his purpose of preparing the way for the Messiah. Wine vinegar was the cheap wine of the common people. They give what they have to hand, uh, nothing special. They do this, why? Perhaps to try and keep him alive a little longer, perhaps to, sadly, enjoy watching him suffer. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, loud because it's a cry of victory, not a sign of defeat or a sigh of resignation. He is victorious. The curtain is torn and the word tear is the same as in Mark chapter 1 verse 10, referring to the heavens being torn open for the spirit to descend upon Jesus. Jesus' death opens the way to direct access to God. And it also ends the previous covenant. Temple worship is over now in the old sense. And have a look at Hebrews 10 and Ephesians 2 for a later New Testament application of what's happening right here. The confession of the soldier is the climax of the gospel and the final reprise of the father's baptismal declaration, says Telford in his commentary on this. The soldier may not have realized the full significance of his statement, but we as the readers do. As Hurtado says, the officer's comment offered after he saw how Jesus died means that he admired the strength and courage exhibited by Jesus. On to the burial. It was preparation day, day before Sabbath, evenings approaching. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, himself waiting for the kingdom of God, goes boldly to Pilate, asks for Jesus' body. He's surprised, Pilate is, to hear that he's already dead. Summoning the centurion, he checked if Jesus was really dead. He learned it was so. He gave the body to, to Joseph. Joseph took some linen cloth, took the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock, rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, they saw where he was laid. He's a prominent man, Joseph of Arimathea, meaning respected, influential and wealthy. And it would probably take a person of influence to gain access to Pilate and persuade him to release the body. The disciples would have had no chance, even if they'd been able to overcome their depression and fear. Normal practice was to leave the body on the cross for scavengers. Pilate had to give permission for Jesus to be buried. It came down to him. Jewish practice was to bury the dead on the same day as death. Even, even their enemies, Deuteronomy 21, is a background to that tradition. The other reason Joseph probably wanted to bury Jesus was because sundown ushered in the Sabbath. And to leave the body on the cross would defile the holy day. Normally a member of the family might have asked for the body, so it emphasizes all the more that Jesus had been abandoned. No one was with him in that sense. 
Jesus, Jesus suffered from so many different angles here. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, anguish was his companion through all of this experience. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, see where he's laid and they would need to see that so they would know the location of the tomb so that they could come back after the Sabbath to complete the process that Joseph had only been able to begin. He hadn't managed to do all of the normal rituals and preparation that would be done and that's why they needed to know. That concludes the overview of the chapter. Let me ask a couple of questions here at the end and uh, I really hope you enjoy some good discussion and do let me know if you have any questions or comments on this chapter or anything I've said from it. The first question is very simple. What do the events of Mark 15 and what happens to Jesus and how he handles it, what does it do to you in terms of inspiring your personal and your group discipleship? How does it inspire you to live a life following Jesus as a loyal disciple. What is it that you see here that can help you to not only stay faithful, but be inspired to grow and to serve others? That's the first question. So my second question is this. We see a lot of false worship in this chapter, a lot of mockery, pretend worship. What does it mean to you to worship Jesus? What does it mean to you to live a life, a worshipful life? worshiping Jesus as a follower of his and someone who loves him and is grateful for him. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to you to worship him? My third question is about victory. This chapter is about victory. Final ultimate victory is the resurrection, but th there's so much victory. Jesus is victorious in getting to the cross, finally completing the mission Jesus, God sent into earth uh, to accomplish. He decisively goes to the cross. We see him victorious in that way. We see the curtain torn in two, prefiguring all of that blessed personal direct access we now have with God. This is a chapter of great sorrow and, and trial and agony, but it's also a, a chapter of victory. And so my question would be, what does it mean to you and your congregation to live a victorious Christian life? Victorious in the Christian sense, not victorious in the way that often the world thinks of victory. But nonetheless, we are victorious people by nature because we follow a victorious Lord. So what does it mean to you to live a victorious Christian life as a disciple, but also a victorious Christian life as a congregation? What does that look like and what does that mean? Well, I hope you find these questions stimulating and useful. Let me know if you have any other questions or thoughts on this chapter. This is the final one of our teaching series, at least for now. I hope you found this series useful. Do drop me a line if you've got any thoughts or questions. Malcolm at MalcolmCox.org. Until the next time, I hope you enjoy your victorious Christian life and that you will reflect on what this soldier said, which was so true in ways that he never imagined it to be, but you and I know what this truly means. Surely this man was the Son of God. Take care and God bless.